You're listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast, a cape-free zone where we share stories and break down strength and struggle narratives to reimagine lives with us at the center. I'm your host, Kayla Charleston. Now let's get into it. Welcome to season three of Not The Wifey Type, the podcast. If you're a returning listener, you probably already know that the break between season two and season three was longer than intended. It was supposed to be um, six to eight weeks and it ended up being, mm, doesn't really matter because we're here now and that's what matters. So thank you for coming back. If you're a returning listener, all I can say is that a bitch was burned out. Like If you are caught up on all the episodes this far, which I hope you are, then you've probably um, heard me mention that I moved to a new city not long before COVID hit. And I was talking to a friend the other day and they said it generally takes two years to settle into a new place after a move. And that's under normal circumstances. So, you know, much less almost two years in a pandemic where where normalcy is basically out the window. So it's been really hard on me not having the community I used to have before I moved. And I just didn't feel motivated to do anything. But I'm back now because I missed having these conversations. And I still have some, so many um, plans for this podcast and for this community. And, you know, speaking of which, if you haven't already, or if you're not aware of the fact that my mailing list exists, go sign up for the Not The Wifey Type mailing list. Um, There's a link in the show notes and you can sign up where it says join the community once once you click on the link. So I promise no spam. I'll only email you when there's something to say, but I really want you all to be aware of um, new things when they start happening. As for this season, I'm super, super, super excited about literally all the guests and all of the topics. We're talking BBLs, NIG sales, finding authenticity apart from relationship status. Of course, a little bit of travel because y'all know I love me some travel. And Massage Noir with Moya Bailey. And in case you don't know, Moya Bailey is the person who, um, who actually coined the term Massage Noir and... Yes, I had a fangirl moment when Moya agreed to be on the show and after we had our recording session because massage noir, the word massage noir is everywhere now. So to speak with the person who who put it out there and who coined it made me feel like we were doing big things with this podcast. So today's episode is a solo episode and I'm doing it because I feel like it could be cathartic for me. It's a thing that's been on my mind a lot since I've had a dog actually. And I think this uh, will be the first time I've ever really asserted how I feel on this subject because when I when I have talked about it in the past, I haven't always been so sure of my um, I don't know my right I guess for lack of a better word to feel this way. And the thing I'm talking about is choosing to be child free or being intentionally child free. According to the Pew Research Center, 23% of adults under 50 say they are unlikely to have children in the future because they don't want to. Um, But even with almost a fourth of adults not wanting kids, it seems like 
stating that you don't want kids is still kind of taboo. And I think a lot of mainstream, a lot of the mainstream conversation or content that centers uh, intentionally child-free women is about white women, which is par for the course. So I thought I would share my perspective as a black woman who is choosing to be child-free, kind of to help normalize it and also to affirm my own choices. So let's talk about how My dog has been a huge reason why I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um, As far as dogs go, he's great. Uh, He's a beautiful animal and adorable at the same time. He's smart and and he's good with other dogs and people, including kids and all that stuff. But he takes work. And I knew this before getting him uh, because I did, I did. I did do tons of research. I watched hours of training videos and um, read like dozens of pieces on on poodle maintenance. I have a poodle. I have a standard poodle. I, I read dozens of you know articles and stuff on poodle maintenance, and I bought everything that I thought I would need uh, before bringing him home, only to find out that he would test me in ways that I didn't really see coming. So um, of all the preparation I did. I still was unprepared in some ways, meaning like he exposed me to some things that I need to work through in myself. And I wasn't quite, I wasn't ready for that realization. So like, for example, we had a moment recently and it was about midnight and I was taking him to his potty break, uh, his last potty break of the night. And usually we don't have any issues. Like he goes out, he potties real quick and we go right back in. I guess that night something caught his attention and he started to, he started to pull me real hard. And so when he pulls, I'll do one of two things. I'll either turn, um, and start walking in the opposite direction. So he has to walk away from whatever he's pulling toward, or I'll stop dead and wait till he comes back. He comes like back to me and sits next to me and gives me eye contact. Basically, so he knows that. I'm walking him. He's not walking me. So this time I stopped and waited for him to come and sit next to me. And this time he refused. Now he's one year old uh, as of like two days ago. And according to our trainer, his little hormones got him feeling himself a little bit. And sometimes that'll show when uh, with like him being disobedient or regressing in his behavior on things that he's been trained to do. So I guess that's what was going on that night. Um, and it turned into a standoff between my dog and I. So at the midnight hour in the dark, I'm standing on the street corner <laughs> looking like that Diddy and Odell Beckham Jeff, like me standing there refusing to move or let him move until he sat and him standing there refusing to sit. And we were out there for a good 20 minutes, not moving. Meanwhile, every now and then a car drives by and I'm hoping it's not somebody who sees a woman and her dog out at midnight as an opportunity. Drunk guy shouting random shit strolls by and I'm hoping the same thing with him. And me and my dog, we're just out there. So... What struck me most about this situation is how angry I was getting, like irrationally angry and not just frustrated or annoyed that he wasn't listening to me, but angry. And eventually I got so angry that I forced him to sit. Now, I didn't hurt him, but I I pressed my forearm against the back of his hind legs so that they bent and where they naturally do and his butt lowered to the ground. So he he struggled to keep standing, but in the end... 
his butt was on the ground and I made him sit there for a little while before he before we went back inside like I won and I was rubbing it in and when we got back inside I had to cool down and it disturbed me that I had to cool down because why like he was just a dog being a dog and in the grand scheme of things him not sitting wasn't a huge deal he wasn't, I mean, like his safety wasn't in jeopardy. My safety wasn't in jeopardy. He wasn't, you know, jeopardizing somebody else's safety. He just didn't want to sit in that moment. And so it kind of scared me that I would get that angry, not only because it wasn't really called for, but because there aren't many things that make me legitimately angry that I know of so far or that have happened to me in life. So I don't know if I was just having a bad day or I was tired or already frustrated about something else. I don't know what my mental state was that, that, that night, but it made me think about how I would react with a child who was just being a child. And I've been thinking about it ever since. So since then, I've come up with six reasons why I plan to stay child free. And maybe somebody will be able to relate or will feel validated um, by hearing my reasons, because some of these reasons I've heard before, but some of them I wish that, um, you know, people talked about more, or at least I wish I had been privy to other black people having these conversations wherever they're being had, because some of these things I haven't really heard a lot of people, um, saying. So reason number one related to the story I just told, I want to do self-work for my own benefit without the implications that it has for for a child. So like in the situation with my dog, we good. I'm pretty sure he forgot about the situation and I'm I I know I'm still the center of his world, you know, cuz he's a dog and I feed him and I play with him and I give him affection, so he looks to me for everything. I'm literally the center of his world. So you know, regardless of that situation in um, that night outside, no harm, no foul. Like I'm free to explore. He's good. And I'm free to explore what it was that made me react in anger without having caused my dog trauma. Like he'll still be a well-trained, happy, well-adjusted dog, despite me um, having forced him to sit down that one time. Um, but that that's not always the case when parents have baggage that they haven't unpacked yet. And I, in my professional non-parent opinion, believe that it's people's job, it's people's responsibility to start working through their trauma and their triggers and their baggage before having kids. And of course, this is in an ideal world um, where people have the time and the resources to do so. But we all know we don't live in an ideal world. And I also don't believe that there's a point after doing self-work that you just reach some level of completion where you're just unaffected by all your trauma or all your triggers and you no longer have anything else to work through. So you could do the work and something new could still come up unexpectedly in the moment. And children aren't like dogs. They weren't bred for centuries to be loyal and obedient companions to humans. So, I mean, they're going to do things that their parents don't think is best. And sometimes um, some shit 
some shit this, that they do is going to stress you the fuck out. And I hate the idea of me reacting irrationally with a child and it potentially becoming a trigger or like an issue for them to have to overcome in the long run. And I know that no parent is perfect. Um, no matter how quote unquote ready you are for a child or how much work you've done to help ensure you're not passing on generational trauma, some things you just won't immediately know how to deal with. And it seems like such a huge weight, um, that my journey to being a healthier person has a direct impact on another human's well-being. Like, I'm still trying to reparent myself and give myself the things that I needed when I was a child and I didn't get like I can't be I feel like I can't be responsible for reparenting myself and another person so that they don't have the issues that I grew up having. It's just too much. And I do believe that you change as a person or you can change as a person once you have children. But the assumption seems to be that you change for the better. Like I've literally had people tell me, oh, you'd be surprised how much patience you have once you have a child. And I'm sorry, but I call bullshit because... It's like, I, I don't believe that you just, once you have a child, you just instinctively become a healthier person, a kinder person, a more understanding person, a more patient person. And I'm thinking back specifically to when I was in grad school, I was a part of a research team and we um, were studying transient youth in Atlanta. It was the homeless youth count and needs assessment. And basically what we did was go out on the streets and find transient youth, transient meaning without a permanent place of residence and give them surveys about how they became transient or houseless, um, you know, what they needed to be happy and what they needed to be healthy and so on and so forth. So what we found is a lot of the youth out there who were on the streets were part of the LGBTQ community and they became, you know, transient because parents or family members or guardians put them out because of their identities. So when we say that you just, when you have kids and you're just so overwhelmed with love and understanding and, you know, whatever for your kids, I just call bullshit because some of the, the most marginalized people in our communities are in those marginalized positions partially, I'm not going to say completely, but partially because they have parents who weren't the kind and understanding and patient, you know, people that people claim you, you become once you have a child. So I would rather just work through my shit on my own and not be responsible for another person's emotional, mental, and physical health. Reason number two, this one I think is a common one, but I like the freedom that comes with being child free. And I really got a new appreciation for this uh, after getting my dog. So one of the issues that we're working through right now is his separation anxiety. Uh, it used to be that as soon as I would walk out of the door, he'd be in hysterics. He'd be barking and howling and whining nonstop. And I'm sure my neighbors hated me, but, um, at first I thought it was normal that he'd, and that he'd eventually like grow out of it, but that's actually not how separation anxiety works. So if you have a dog with separation anxiety, um, 
if you leave them alone, they won't automatically learn how to self-soothe. Like they're literally in a state of anxiety and all they can focus on is that panicked feeling. So they're not really thinking, okay, I need to self-soothe. However dog is saying, I don't know how dogs think, but they don't, they don't automatically learn to self-soothe. You have to, you have to show them how, um, you have to show them how to self-soothe by starting with leaving them alone for really, really short periods of time at first. And when I say really short periods of time, I mean like stepping outside of the door for one second, literally, and then coming back inside. And you can't give them, basically you can't give them a chance to freak out. So then you gradually build from like one second up to several seconds. And then when they're good with that, up to a minute. And then when they're good with that, up to you know several minutes and so on and so forth till you get to a point where they're able to be alone for long periods of time. So we've been doing training exercises for his separation anxiety for over two months now. And he's at the point where he can go like, 20 to 30 minutes without freaking the fuck out. (laughs) But I still can't leave him alone for much longer than that, which means if there's something I, somewhere I want to go, I either can't or I have to take him with me. Like it has to be somewhere that he can go or I have to make arrangements so that he's not alone. And it's been really hard because I miss the freedom of being able to come and go as I please. And I thought that was a perk of having a dog versus a kid, you know, was that you could leave a dog alone for a few hours and they'd be fine. Whereas like, you can't really do that with a, with a young child. And basically now I feel like I got a young child. So, um, and it, it hasn't been, so it's, it has been hard not having the freedom of being able to come and go, but I think it would be even harder if it weren't a pandemic because I don't go too many, too, too, too many places as it is, but I can't imagine it not being a pandemic and having a dog who has separation anxiety. So the similarities became even more clear to me, like between my dog with separation anxiety and like a young child. When I went to my goddaughter's first birthday, she turned one this year and um, she had a birthday party in the park. So she, so I went to her birthday party and she would not let her mother put her down. <laughs> and if her mother tried to, my goddaughter would cry and cry and cry until her mother picked her back up. So basically my friend spent most of the party with the baby on her hip. And it reminded me so much of my dog and how he like needs to be close to me all the time and how much work it's taking to overcome his separation anxiety. And, you know, that's just with him following me around and wanting to be in the same room with me all the time. Um, I, I listened to my friend talk about the challenges of like breastfeeding, which I, if I did have a kid, I would want to breastfeed because of all the benefits. And But I'm listening to her talk about the challenges of breastfeeding and realizing that your baby wants to nurse because it's a comfort to them, but your nipples are sore and raw from nursing so much. And all you want is a, is a solid chunk of time, you know, to yourself without a baby attached to you. I don't even know if I'm describing it accurately, but it sounds exhausting. And like, here I'm thinking having a a dog who can't have me out of his sight is, you know, stressful, much less having a baby latched onto me (laughs) every hour or two for months. It just, once again, it's too much. 
So moving on to reason number three, which is kind of related, is that I don't want someone, that someone being the person I have a child with, having um, that control over me or my options. Now hear me out. The ability to control reproduction is the ability to control the choices of people who can bear children. And if that weren't true, there wouldn't be so much effort to control access to abortion. Like right now, right, right now, people are fighting against the draconian abortion law that was recently enacted in Texas. So that's on a larger, like institutional scale. On a more interpersonal level, I believe it's, um, more common than we think for, for men to use impregnating people to maintain some sort of control. So like a one study I found, um, said that as many as one in four women who came into sexual health clinics experienced reproductive coercion. So like, okay, what's reproductive coercion? It could look as innocent as, as a person, you know, nicely trying to persuade you not to use condoms because it doesn't feel as good. It could also be as nefarious as stealthing, which is removing a condom without the other person knowing. It could be, um, as manipulative as throwing out birth control pills. Um, but reproductive coercion is basically controlling the reproductive choices of others. And I also believe there are other men who don't necessarily use coercion or deception to impregnate people, but still like impregnating people for the control that it gives him. Like they impregnated someone with, you know, consent or shared, you know, understanding that they both wanted to be parents, but it still sometimes is about control for the man. The truth is that most men are not primarily responsible for childcare, whether they are married or not. And there's this trope of women using pregnancy to trap men in relationships. But in all honesty, there are men who impregnate people because they know, men know that men are not the primary ones taking care of children. According to the Pew Research Center, in 2011, the time married mothers devoted to childcare was 14.3 hours per week, whereas for married fathers, it was 7.2 hours per week. For single mothers, it was 11.3 hours per week, and single fathers, it was 8 hours per week. So men are more likely to be able to go about living their lives while the person they impregnated takes primary primary responsibility for the child. Um, and oftentimes this means that they can't move as freely. Um, they may be limited. They may have limited options for moving on with someone else and they may even have fewer economic opportunities. And so the way that you see this play out is specifically with the, um, issue with fewer economic opportunities. One in four unmarried mothers lives in poverty. So out of every combination of parental status and marital status, unmarried mothers have the highest rates of poverty, higher than, um, unmarried sing or uh, unmarried child-free women, higher than married, uh, child-free women, higher than married women with children, unmarried mothers are more likely to live in poverty. And also more generally, women are more likely to live in poverty than men. And it has everything to do with the fact that our society is set up in such a way that the assumption is that um, child care and care work are the responsibilities of women. 
And so, of course, this disproportionately affects black women since 70% of black children are born to unmarried mothers. Um, in one study that I found, one in three African-American men had children with more than one woman compared to 17% of Hispanic men and 14% of white men. And obviously you can't, I mean, like in our society, it's not legal to marry more than one woman at a time. So um, black men seem to be spreading their seed a little bit thinner than men of other races. Now, this is not me like advocating for the nuclear family structure because it's not the ideal structure that it's presented to be. It's also not me like pointing fingers or whatever. I'm just presenting facts and highlighting the scope of an issue. And we talk about, you know, we center black women here. So black women are you know, most likely to have children with black men. So, um, one person that I, one person that came to mind when I was thinking about this actually was Nick Cannon. (laughs) Nick Cannon has seven children by four women and he claims, um, that he's intentionally having so many kids because he has lupus and like won't live as long as the average person. So I guess that's like his way of leaving a legacy. And some people may not take issue with this because he's rich and all his kids and his kids' mothers are taken care of financially. But I think it's fair to to like wonder whether he has the time and the energy to be present in all of his children's lives equally or is he just impregnating women and letting them handle the brunt of the child care and apart from that he's also making a statement by the women he's choosing to impregnate so if you look at all the mothers of his children they're all um, light-skinned enough to pass a paperback test or biracial or racially ambiguous which is really telling it's kind of like He's saying, hey, I fuck exotic bitches and here's the proof with the proof being the kids that he's leaving all over the place. And, you know, truthfully, I think there are regular men doing what Nick Cannon is doing without the resources, without the excuse of grappling with their mortality or without access to exotic bitches. And, you know, you can call it legacy building. You can call it attempting to assert control, tomato, tomato. But I think for a lot of men, the idea of quote unquote building a legacy and ha- and passing your name on and blah 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 is a lot more attractive and appealing of an idea as actually showing up to be a father in um an equal way as you know what your partner is bringing or the person who brings your child into the world um the amount of labor that they're also dedicating to that that endeavor. So, uh, I actually just thought of another example of a, of a famous guy who actually two. So I think I saw a video of like Safari and Erica Mena, and she was talking about how he wanted a baby. He wanted to be a father, but then when when the baby came, like he wasn't supportive. And, um, Safari was basically talking about how he didn't, he didn't like how things changed and he didn't like how much work it was. And, I remember when that video went around, everybody was like, what the fuck? <laughs> what did you think being a father was? Another video that I remember circulating was Candy Burris. And she was talking about how Todd, after the baby came, like the first week the baby was there, Todd was back in the club. Like, what are you doing back in the club? And your baby is like three days old. So I know these are examples of men who are famous or almost famous or you know are known for being a reality person personality uh reality reality tv personality but i don't think that this sentiment 
is uncommon or this behavior or these actions are uncommon in regular men. So whether you're rich like Nick Cannon and you're now reveling in your access to bad bitches or whether you are a regular black man who is still, you know, battling the the everyday disenfranchisement that you experience in this country i i think the idea of having a legacy and, and being able to impregnate people and pass on your name or whatever is a more appealing than actually showing up so going back to why i plan to be child free all i know is that i never want to be the one stuck taking care of kids while their father is out living and this applies to being married or not because as i said before married men don't be shit either and maybe stuck sounds like a harsh word but that's how i feel um i know people in real life who are married and the women take uh take on an unfair amount of childcare. I also know people in real life who are unmarried with children by men who just choose not to be around and the women do unfair amounts of childcare. I don't really want either, either situation, either scenario. So like if we're together, I want to be able to say, babe, I'll be back. I feel like spending three months on the other side of the world and be able to do that without, uh, him balking at the idea of having to cover my share of the childcare. If we're not together, I want to be able to move to the other side of the world without considering how it would impact my relationship with my child or my child's relationship with their father. If we don't work out, (laughs) I want to be able to block you from existence and pretend you never happened. And you can't do that when you have a forever connection with someone. And that's too much control for someone to have in my life. And I know fathers who are very active in their children's lives and take a lot of pride in being fathers, but I value my freedom too much for it to be contingent upon a man's willingness to do his fair share. And unfortunately, that's what it comes down to under patriarchy and the nuclear family structure. Men get to choose how active they want to be and women sacrifice when they're not. Which brings me to my next reason. Reason number four is that we don't really have a great infrastructure infrastructure that supports mothers and especially not black mothers. So um, going back to the nuclear family structure, that basically means that in a household, there's the mother, the father, and the kids. And research does show that children from nuclear families tend to fare better on measures of social and emotional and physical health, as well as like be, as well as having a better financial, having better financial stability, but that's not really because the nuclear family model is inherently healthier. It's it's basically because our society is set up in a way that privileges or favors the nuclear family model over others. So um, going back to the statistic I gave about unmarried mothers and poverty, one in four unmarried mothers live in poverty because of the ways that employers punish women who have children, for example, lack of promotions, uh, because of occupational gender segregation that traps women in low paying jobs because of a wage gap that pays women less than men for the same jobs. And because women spend more time on childcare, sometimes having to sacrifice education and other um, economic activities. So meanwhile, on top of this, mothers in the nuclear family structure are more likely more likely to feel burnt out. And that's because all of the family's demands uh, are falling on her 
you know, to fulfill rather than having like a community or an extended network that's responsible for the care of the family. And while I love the idea of having a household that consists of multiple generations of extended family or of chosen family to combat burnout or to be able to pool our resources, realistically for me, I'm not sure how possible that is um, given my current networks. Like I know couples who live um, with at least one of their parents and I listen to how my mom talks about their setup and she says things like, I just don't understand wanting to live with your kids. I couldn't do it. What if I want to get loud with my man? I need privacy. Basically, she's worried about being nasty in peace and that, among other reasons for my family not um, getting along, is why if I wanted to like if I wanted a village to help raise a child, it would have to be chosen family. And like having to make that happen and find people who are on the same page as you in terms of like having a community and raising your children, I think it's more challenging than it sounds. Um, so there's that. Then there's the healthcare industry and the like the implicit bias in the fact that medical professional professionals don't believe black people about their pain and don't prescribe necessary medications based on this disbelief. There's the fact that black women are three to four times more likely to die from complications related to childbirth childbirth than their um, white counterparts than white women and even rich and famous black women like Serena Williams and Beyonce have these issues. So I really think about having a child like, am I ready to die for this? And the answer is no. So um, more in terms of infrastructure, there's after the child is born. 55% of employers offer paid maternity leave and 45% offer paid paternity leave. So this means that a lot of people will still have to balance between taking time off and needing income. Not to mention that um, parental leave is usually about six weeks. So some some research suggests that it can take six months or even a year for the body to recover after giving birth. So like, I don't even feel like myself and I'm having to go back to work. And it, it really makes me mad when I think about other countries and how much time their employers give them off like, um, in some countries, people get six weeks of vacation time, of, of vacation just off top. And that's not even including their like sick days or, or whatever. Like they get six weeks minimum. And it's so it's so wild to me when I think about the fact that we have six weeks of, of paid maternity leave or paternity leave or whatever. And, and that's it. Then you have to consider childcare, which is ridiculously expensive, but necessary because we force parents back to work and we insist on nuclear family structures. So it all just compounds on itself and, and creates unfavorable conditions to raise children. And I, I do know some black women who are only surviving because they have extended networks of family and friends to help out. But like I said before, it's more challenging for some to cultivate than others. And like I'm thinking about, so I would, I would actually do this or it was something I would consider with my best friend and I think we've talked about it when um 
I can't remember the episode number, but it was from season one. It was called On Recentering Women in Friendship and in Life. And we talked about the idea of having kids and raising them, you know, within a support system outside of, you know, the nuclear family structure or just the the mom and the dad. But, you know, I have to consider things like, do I really want to live in Kentucky for the rest of my life in order to do this with my best friend? And the answer is no. So, um, and just... If I'm being honest, I also think it's difficult to find women who are, I don't want to say this, but it's how I feel. I think it's, I think there are still so many male identified women who don't want to give up the idea of living and partnering with men in a way that you have to be in the same household. Like I don't, there aren't, it's hard to meet women who are open to the idea of having a life that doesn't center men. And the internet makes the world a lot smaller of a place, but I don't know. It just seems like such a big challenge to get from a from point A to point B. Point B being a life where, you know, you're not dependent on a man choosing to show up in a way that's fair and equal, or you're not depending on his resources, be it time or money or whatever, for you to have a better quality life. Like men can be in the picture, they can they can be around, they can you can have romance with them if that's what they provide, sex, whatever it is, but just not being dependent on what they have to give or what they don't have to give in order for your for you to be okay and for your child to be okay. And I think that quote unquote misandry is popular right now, but I do wonder how many women are actually ready to make men secondary parts of their lives. I read an article about uh friends who are very intentional intentional about telling men who come into their lives that they're um, primary relationship is their friendship. It's a platonic friendship and they make sure to tell men that they're, you know, anybody they date romantically comes second to their friendship. And, you know, I wonder how many women, if there was a man to come along and they feel deeply in love, how many of them would resort back to wanting to be attached to a man in a more traditional sense? And I'm not, um, saying this to be like self-righteous, like, oh, I would, you know, act ideally in this situation. I don't know how I would act, you know, so I'm not above, I'm not above, you know, critique or whatever, but I think that we're just so, so socialized and conditioned to want that fairy tale, to want that nuclear family, to want to be in a household where it's the mom and the, the dad and the kids or whatever, and want that happy ending that it's a lot harder to, um, disengage from that or unlearn it or, or, you know, decondition or whatever you want to call it. It's hard and it's intentionally hard because it maintains the status quo. If it wasn't hard, then I mean, patriarchy wouldn't have such a foothold or the foothold that it does on our communities, our men, our families. So anyway, reason number five, reason number five feels a little personal. I wonder if I'd have the magical life-changing connection that people talk about having after meeting their child for the first time. I think this makes me think about my dog again and how my feelings for him are different than what I hear most people describe about their pets. Like 
Um, lots of people will say that their dog is their best friend or their dog is their greatest companion or they can't imagine life without their dog, blah, 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 blah. So I'm fond of my dog. He's fun to play with and to teach new things. And he's, of course, way smarter and cuter than any other dog. But of course, I'm supposed to say that. But um, I can definitely imagine my life without him. And he is not my best friend or... <laughs> greatest companion so I know that raising a dog from puppyhood is a lot different from um making a child from scratch if you will and carrying them in your body and then delivering them through hours of labor and there's bound to be some kind of connection from going through that process but I don't think we allow enough space for people who bear children to express that they don't get those tingly, fuzzy, magical feelings. Or maybe they do get them, but they also have other less acceptable feelings um, with it too. And like postpartum depression comes to mind. And just, I, I feel like there's probably a lot of stigma for mothers who do feel you know, certain aspects of postpartum depression and, you know, lack of attachment to their kids. Like, I just feel like there's not enough space for people to be honest about that. And I know that the expectation of how I'd feel about my dog doesn't match the reality of how I feel about my dog. And having a kid is way too permanent of a thing to discover how I would feel toward my kid after having a kid. So that brings me to my very last reason, which is number six. And it's that I simply never had the desire. When I was in high school, we had a scrapbooking assignment where we had to um, include pictures from the past and then like our, our like vision for the future. So it was the first time I remember it was the first time I um, had ever imagined getting married. And I cut up bridal magazines to glue the perfect wedding dress and the scrapbook and all this stuff. But what I didn't do was make a family where I was a mother and there were, there were children. So even like, even then I, I, I never imagined me being a mother. It's always been like that. And so I guess in that moment I could conceive of, you know, me being married, but I couldn't conceive of, of motherhood. And I've heard people I've heard of people knowing from childhood that they wanted a family with children. And um, when I look at pictures and videos of babies, I I don't get baby fever like other people get. I don't get that like achy longing for my own um, to have my to have one of my own. I just see a perfect little angel in someone else's blessing. So. Yeah, I just, I have never had the desire to have kids, quite simply. And if it weren't for this reason, maybe all the other reasons might not seem so big. Like if I had the desire, maybe dealing with a racist healthcare system wouldn't feel so daunting or having to surrender leisure time to childcare, whether in equal or unequal proportions to, you know, the father wouldn't feel like such a sacrifice or I don't know, the idea of permanent being permanent, permanently attached to another person wouldn't seem so harrowing, but, um, that's, that's part of what's been 
the most difficult in my path to choosing to be child free. It's very hard to determine what my intrinsic feelings about having kids have been versus what I've been socialized or conditioned to feel about having kids and how like external factors um, came into play. Like, what what which came first the chicken or the egg as a kid did i get some sense of mother uh, some sense that motherhood meant um extra hurdles and sacrifice even if i didn't have the you know vocabulary or complete understanding and then you know decide from that that motherhood wasn't for me or did i just intrinsically not want to have kids from the very beginning and then as I got older and a better understanding of society and the, those external factors, they affirmed my desire to remain child-free. I don't really know which one it is. And I don't know that I'll ever be able to answer that. Um, and, you know, part of my journey has been to make peace with the not knowing. Thank you for listening to Not The Wifey Type, the podcast. If you love the show, make sure to subscribe so you'll know when new episodes drop and rate and review so others will know how much you love the show too if you want to keep up with me personally you can follow me on instagram at not the wifey type until next time i'm reminding you to belong to yourself <laughs>